Hi, hello, and welcome to the Borderlines podcast. Uh, it's uh, I'm Peter Edelman. I'm here with uh, Steve Murens, and we're very fortunate to be joined today by uh, Michael Green, who's uh, um, a long-standing uh, uh, immigration lawyer who's who's been working uh, working in Alberta for for many years. Uh, and we've uh, I think both Steve and I over the years have had the chance to talk to Michael and get advice from Michael from uh, as, as we learned how to practice in this area. And um, we're here in uh, Toronto. Uh, the three of us uh, decided to fly across the country to meet, uh, to meet together to talk uh, a little bit about preclearance. Uh, um, among many of the things Michael's been doing uh, is uh, one of his many appearances before the Standing Committee on Immigration was recently uh, on behalf of the Canadian Bar Association on Bill C-23, which is the Pre-Clearance Act. Uh, and we were uh, thought we'd sit down and have a chat with Michael about uh, what um, what this whole pre-clearance thing is about and uh, what what we should take away from it. So Yeah, as Peter uh, noted, Parliament uh, through the Standing Committee is currently reviewing proposed legislation to amend what or how preclearance works in Canada. And for those who don't know, what preclearance is, is if you live in uh, any major Canadian city at this point, um, Vancouver, certainly, Calgary, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, if you're going to the United States by air, you'll note that you'll often go through or you will go through U.S. customs at the Canadian airport. Um, So the process normally is you would check your bags, go through security, and then you'll clear U.S. customs while you're still in Canada instead of um, doing it in the United States. And normally your plane going from Canada to the United States will arrive at a domestic uh, uh, arrival terminal in the United States. And what the uh, government of Canada is currently uh, debating is legislation to revise how this program works as well as introduce the ability of um, some Canadian customs officers to be stationed at U.S. airports, possibly, and do pre-clearance for Canadians returning to Canada where they'll clear Canadian customs in the United States. And uh, before we get into the uh, some of the issues that have arisen in this bill and issues which uh, Michael uh, has uh, led a C- Canadian Bar Association effort to comment on some of the legal implications of the government's bill. Are there any other just general aspects of preclearance that are in the new bill that you think are worth quickly touching on? They're going to expand it. They already do it for land in some cases. I think there's talk that they're going to expand preclearance to trucks. Um, and I think they do it as well as at the at some of the naval crossings, like at Vancouver Island, um, for boarding a boat to uh, Port Angeles. So I'll jump in. Good time for me to jump in. Thanks for inviting me, guys. Um, happy to to participate. Hopefully, I can say something useful. So that the um, existing preclearance, we've had preclearance in Canada now for almost sixty years, where where. Uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Officers have operated on Canadian soil. It's been restricted to airports so far, but uh, there's 11 airports in Canada that have U.S. preclearance at them. We do not have anything reciprocal. That is, there's no Canadian preclearance happening in the U.S., but that could change. Um, the, uh, the, the, the last legislation was in 1999. And that's when they, they made the current act. Previously, they had no act at all. So I don't know how they did it, but they did it. Uh, they, they brought this act in 1999, and now they want to overhaul it and expand preclearance so that they can do it at rail uh, terminals 
at marine terminals and at land crossings. And they have um, uh, an idea that, that, that there's, they want to do uh, trains in Montreal and Vancouver, uh, for starters, but who knows where it's going in the future. And, of course, there's the ferry terminals, particularly you see them uh, in the um, San Juans, the Gulf Islands, uh, going, to, going to, this, to the States. Um, and, and who knows where else they'll, they'll want to put those, those kind of preclearance terminals. They also want to have uh, a mechanism in place for Canada to have preclearance in the U.S., for Canadians or people flying to Canada so that they could do it uh, there. They really have nothing concrete. I'd be surprised to see a preclearance, uh, a Canadian preclearance in the U.S. for quite a long time because uh, we don't have the same motivation. For us, our motivation is to increase the flow of trade and, 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 and the flow of goods and people too, uh, but particularly trade. We want to make it easier, not harder, for goods to cross the border. But we also want to make it easier for people. The U.S. motivation is entirely different. They, that's not their motivation at all. They, they're only interested in security. And what they want to do is to push the border outside. And so they think it's easier if they can stop a bad guy um, in, on Canadian soil, for instance, um, and uh, before he even gets to, you know, to, to U.S. territory, to pick him off that way. And so it's important when you're considering or understanding what's going on that there's a completely different motivation happening. Uh, by both parties in, 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 this, in this dialogue. Okay, and so when it comes to preclearance um, and these areas at the airports, whose law, like, at that point, when you go, say, at YBR or Pearson into the room that the preclearance is being done, whose jurisdiction are you in? Are you still in Canada at that point? Are you in the U.S.? Whose laws apply there? So there's a bit of mixed, but in the, I was involved when they brought in the 1999 legislation, and their first draft of that legislation, it was very ambiguous, and it made it look like it was U.S. territory. And the Bar Association fought them hard on this issue um, to, to make it unequivocally clear this is Canadian soil, because it is Canadian soil. There's no doubt about it. We are not ceding this territory to the U.S. That's not happened. Uh, we're doing this as a convenience to them, but we're saying you have to rep respect our laws. So this bill, like its predecessor, does start off saying this is Canadian soil. The Canadian Charter applies. The Canadian Bill of Rights applies. Canadian law applies. U.S. law doesn't apply. Except that, in fact, they are allowed to administer their, their administrative laws, their customs and immigration laws, um, and apply their rules. That's what they're doing on Canadian soil. So, uh, it, but it's, it's done by statute. So we're giving them the statutory authority. Canada is giving them the authority to do this on Canadian soil. And so what are they giving them the authority to do? So like, let, let's talk about the Canadian side. Maybe we can start by talking about what, what, um, what are the new, I guess, what are they currently allowed to do? And what does this new bill allow U.S. officers to do on Canadian soil under this new act? Right. So they, they now do apply uh, U.S. customs and immigration laws. And, then, you know, when they're deciding whether you can go to the United States, they're applying their laws, their rules, their, you know, so, and, and what you want to bring with you. So, no, you can't bring Cuban cigars through uh, a preclearance area, for instance. That's, you know, where, whereas if it was Canadian law, there's no problem. We don't have a problem with with Cuban cigars as long as you don't bring more than 48. Um, so that kind of thing uh, has been going on for quite a while, and I don't think that's a big change. What's changing is 
that they're giving considerably more powers. Uh, the bill would give considerably more powers to to U.S. officers, and because it would change, uh, make a, a very fundamental change, and that is to do with the right to withdraw from a preclearance inspection. Um, the change to that, in a, in effect, changes the whole nature of a preclearance area from being Canadian soil where you're going through a voluntary exercise to semi-U.S. soil where you uh, you can be compelled to stay there and answer questions as long as they want to ask you questions. And where there are actually offense provisions for not complying with that. Right. If you don't answer their questions or if, if they think you don't answer truthfully, then at that point in time, you may be committing an offense and uh, they, they, can, they have to bring in a, a Canadian officer, a Border Services officer from the CBSA um, to, to lay a charge. But that's contemplated if you're not cooperating or if you're being dishonest and dishonest in the perception of the person who lays the charge. And then there's some expansion of search provisions as well in terms of the, the power of the officers to effect searches and to bring in Canadian officers to do more advanced searches. Yeah. Uh, those have been built into this new legislation. Those those don't exist at this no. time. So, so to take it in... Um, well, okay, so so with the searches, let's just start with the, with the searches. Um, under the current legislation... Um, they can do pat-downs. If the U.S. think that a strip search is warranted, then they have to call in the CBSA, and the search must be conducted by a CBSA officer, period. The U.S. officer can observe, but they cannot conduct the search. It's a CBSA officer. Under the new bill, it says that they have to call the CBSA, but if the CBSA is unable to attend or not willing to attend, or says they're going to attend and don't show up on a timely basis, uh, or says they might attend and say we're not willing to do the search, then the U.S. officer gets to conduct the search themselves. And our concern is that basically makes it meaningless to bring in the CBSA because U.S. officers can override them. If a CBSA officer says, I don't think there's reasonable grounds to suspect or believe the person is, has uh, contraband on them, um, and I'm not going to do the search. And that, that, that officer is applying Section 8 of the Charter about unreasonable search and seizure. Um, they can be overruled by an American officer saying, too bad for you, I'm going to do the search anyway. And this person has to comply. And that's a, you know, a major change in the nature because it gives tremendous powers, uh, a very intrusive, invasive power to a foreign officer operating on Canadian soil, which so can't be overridden by a Canadian officer. So at that point, um, if a search has been conducted and the U.S. finds something that, say it's marijuana, and let's suppose at this point, just for the purpose of this question, marijuana has been legalized in Canada, it's after July 2018, but the United States in a pre-clearance area finds marijuana, um, which you can't bring into the U.S., who's at that point, who would be, would they be able to arrest the person who would be arresting the American customs officer? Or would they bring in the so, CBSA? So um, there's, there's two kind of things that can happen to you if they, if they think there's a, a, a customs offense. They can apply administrative, U.S. administrative law, customs law, which means they can impose administrative penalties. It's not a criminal conviction. It's an administrative penalty. Okay, it's a port of entry violation, if you will. Uh, it's effectively the same as if you did it at a port of entry. What they can't do is lay a criminal charge, 
Um, if, if it is something, though, let, let's just say it's cocaine. Um, and that's not legal here uh, at the time. And, and uh, they can then call in the CBSA who can lay a charge or the RCMP who can lay a charge, the police, whatever police. Um, but they just can't, they can't lay a, a criminal charge under U.S. law. But they can still ding you, and, and that's going to stick around and follow you next mm. time you try to go to the U.S. Although currently under our law, the if you take the Immigration Act, for example, the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, it applies extraterritorially anyways. Mm-hmm. So if you lie to a visa post overseas, even if you never come to Canada, you can still be charged criminally for that lie. So in that sense, the... The application, you just won't be arrested and detained in the United States. But if you went, if, if I went to the visa post in uh, uh, Los Angeles and applied for a visa and presented fraudulent documents and lied to them to get the visa, um, they could lay charges here in Canada right. with respect to that, with respect to that you're, conduct. You're talking about Canadian law, like... The, the, the Canadian Visa Office in Los Angeles. Right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, Canadian immigration law applies extraterritorially sure. anyways. You could get nailed in Canada for something you did at a, a pre-clearance area. Let's say if Canada had a pre-clearance area in New Jersey. Correct. Um, and you you did a misrepresentation, for instance. Yeah, in theory, you could be charged back in Canada because of that extraterritorial uh, effect of the, of the provisions. I don't know about U.S. law. I don't know enough about U.S. law to know whether or not anything could result in like a future charge being laid against you for what you did at a preclearance area. I've never heard of that happening to date, but I'm not saying it, it couldn't. Uh, it's more, you know, the, the more common effect is, is that people just find that they're not allowed to go to the U.S. anymore. I, I would be surprised to learn that U.S. immigration law does not allow for criminal sanctions for fraudulent or, or in visa posts, for example, the same way that you would One in Canada, would where if somebody lies to an immigration officer at a visa at a U.S. visa post in Tokyo, yes. that you could be charged in the United States one, with respect to that. I, I, I think one would think that's the, that's the case. However, it the the bill is very clear. U.S. law doesn't apply that way, and so they can't use. Uh, as far as I know, I mean that, that the officers at the port of entry can't go say, "Okay, well, I'm charging you under the." you know, the U.S. Act, and, and, you know, you're going to have to appear in front of a judge, that kind of stuff. I don't believe they can do that. Now, there may be, a, however, a situation where you set foot in the U.S. and you'll find there's a warrant out or something like that. Maybe. I, you know, haven't seen that. But, you know, as it is now, the, the administrative penalties are, are substantial, and the effect can be substantial. I mean, what happens at the port of entry could result in you having a lifetime bar because of you've made a misrepresentation, because that is what the penalty is, the administrative penalty for lying to a U.S. immigration officer or customs officer, is a lifetime bar. You have and, to get a waiver after that. And so let's, going back to this person who says caught with uh, cocaine, but had noted that the CBSA said, you know what, we're not comfortable with this search under Section 8 of Canada's uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. If that person wanted to challenge the U.S. Customs Border Protection search, who's Whose jurist, whose law would they be? Would they be? Could they rely on the charter? Does the charter apply there? Would they have to go to the U.S. Constitution? So uh, the way it's set up is your remedies in Canada. Your the, the remedies in the U.S. are only for against administrative penalties. So okay. if they see something, if they fine you, if you go through the U.S. regime, whatever that is, whatever appeal rights you have, and apparently that's you know we've been assured that that. 
people will be have access to that that system. If you're challenging and saying that was an unreasonable search and seizure, I you know I want a, a declaration or I actually want damages. That's Canadian courts. The problem is that they've also created a bunch of immunities, and to the point where you know one of the concerns we have is there aren't effective remedies. So individual officers are immune. You cannot sue that officer. You can't take any action against that individual officer. You can sue the government of the United States. That you can do. And the problem is your average individual is going to be a little bit intimidated against taking on the government of the United States. So in practice, there's a concern we have that there really isn't a remedy against misconduct. That there's there's no really there's there's no real oversight. Um, as, to correct, especially if it becomes a pattern, like how are we going to deal with that? And because your average individual, I don't think is going to likely to take them to court to try to sue for finding the U.S. government was unreasonable. So, so talking about this, uh, the, the the bill seems to say that the charter is going to apply to the conduct of the U.S. Uh, uh, conduct under this new preclearance yes. area. Um, now, the, the, my understanding of the charter is that it applies to government actors. In other words, it applies to the it, it only applies to the actions of the government, um, whether it's the provincial or the federal government or an agent of the government. Um, in in the course of the hearings, and I didn't follow the hearings particularly closely, but did was there a justification given for why there appears to be a view that the charter would apply to U.S. Customs officers, or is this just a fig leaf that's actually not going to have any effect? Well, the um, the bill's unequivocal. It says the charter applies, um, and when you you talk about agents, that's exactly what it is. Is the government of Canada is giving these people the power to exercise, in effect, governmental policies and, and very intrusive governmental policies, right? They have, uh, uh, you know, they have the powers to do pretty extensive examination, uh, in, in my view, almost unlimited examination. Um, they have the power to search, uh, which is, you know, really restricted. There, there are not very many people who have that power. They're given that power by the Canadian government through its, through Parliament, through this legislation. So, you know, certainly nominally, the, the, it, it's clear the Charter applies. The, the minister, when he appeared before the committee, was unequivocal. This is Canadian soil, the Canadian law, the Canadian charter applies to what they're doing. So the problem is in practice, how is it going to work? And, you know, they say, we're going to train, uh, we're going to train these people. All of every U.S. officer will go through training to familiarize themselves with the Canadian charter and, um, you know, with constitutional protections and how we do things here. Um, I don't know what other people think. That doesn't give me a warm, fuzzy feeling. When you've got officers who report to a different government, which has extensive training for them, um, they're selected for certain reasons and they're trained to, and they've got a different mandate than our people have. Their mandate is so so heavily security oriented, security oriented, and the you know with the current administration, their respect for people's individual rights is is absolutely secondary if if it exists at all. And so these officers who operate under that regime come into Canada and get a couple of weeks of training from CBSA officers. Um, that I, I don't feel myself a lot of confidence that they're going to really understand our charter and our, our, our legal system. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a potential weakness. It's why 
um, I think we need to have some oversight and we have some we need to have some ongoing review of this process. And I guess one of the, I mean, there's a couple of questions that have come up for me in reviewing this bill. Like one is, do they foresee the entire charter applying in the sense that if, for example, U.S. border guards were deploying these powers in a discriminatory way, take the recent travel ban, for example, where they're deploying these powers only against the nationals of certain countries, or they're deploying these powers differently against the nationals of certain countries, which is entirely foreseeable under the current administration. Entirely. And so at that point, do you have a claim against Canadian officers? You would clearly have a Section 15 discrimination claim under the Charter for that kind of conduct. And there's no question that would be litigated. And so do they actually foresee that applying to the U.S. guards? You know, it's it's interesting. I, you know, in theory, yes, you could bring it. I think you can bring an action against the U.S. government. You have to, you know, look carefully at the the immunity uh, that they grant, because that's one of the things that they negotiate. This this law is based upon an agreement negotiated between Canada and the U.S. under the Harper administration and the Obama administration. Nobody foresaw uh, the Trump administration. And what impact, you know, so, so those kind of concepts were, I, I, or that, that kind of situation, scenario was, was probably not envisaged. But on an agency theory, right? So, yeah. I mean, the, the, under the charter, you, you can only litigate against the government. Either you're litigating against the federal government or the provincial government. And if you're litigating against one of the agents of the government, then you're still litigating against the government, right? So... For me, if if this is being done on an agency theory, presumably what we would be what we would be doing is pursuing the Canadian government because its agents, the U.S. Mm-hmm. officers, were acting in a way. And so I've, I'm not convinced by this agency theory, and and I'm not I, I haven't heard a rational um, explanation as to why they think the charter is going to apply to their conduct. It, it's not, I'm still not convinced by it, and I think that they're going to do it. What, what this is, in my view, is a fig leaf that's going to apply to a very restricted set of conduct. The powers of arrest, the powers of search and seizure. But it's not about applying the charter in general to the actions of these officers. Or I'd be very surprised to see them take that position if you ever litigated this. Right. Good question. And, and it may be that that's what it's going to take. And I'm sure they're banking there won't be litigation. Probably. I don't know. Um, like I say, I'm not sure they even thought that, that kind of scenario through, that, that the U.S. government would actually engage in something that's blatantly discriminatory. And I'd love to see that happen. It would be interesting to see how it plays out. Certainly, all I can tell you is that their position is that you know, it, Canadian law does apply, um, and that what they've told us, I can only tell you in meetings we've had, they've told us that your remedy is to sue the U.S. government, not the Canadian government, but the U.S. government. So um, it would be interesting if you, you sue them uh, as, as you know, the agents who, are, who did the conduct, and then you do bring in the Canadian government, maybe, I don't know, I, that's a good question. I'm not sure how that will, will play out, but there's no question that um, the 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 way the agreement was negotiated and the way the legislation has been drafted is it makes makes it clear that they're not giving up territorial authority 
uh, either party is when they create a preclearance area, they're maintaining their territorial authority and saying our law applies, our charter applies, or in the U.S. case, the U.S. Constitution applies. Because my, my initial reaction to this coming from the extradition, because I, I, I do quite a bit of work in the extradition context, right. and it's, it's very clear in the extra, it's and it's been made very clear to me by various U.S. counsel that both the charter, so the charter, our Supreme Court has been clear that the charter does not apply extraterritorially. In other words, our laws can apply extraterritorially, but the charter, aside from some very exceptional circumstances, so there's the the case of of Hutter, is uh, is where the court left open the possibility that if there were a breach of international norms, that the charter might apply extraterritorially. In other words, if Canadian uh, officers were torturing people overseas, then the charter might apply. But in terms of uh, everyday charter section 8, uh, search, uh, search and seizure, section 15, discrimination, all of those things, the charter does not apply extraterritorially. And so the court, the court's been clear in uh, in Hape and in uh, other cases where uh, it, it doesn't apply. The U.S. Constitution, in my understanding, functions the same way. And what we often see in the extradition context is situations where, for example, you had search uh, wiretaps done in Canada that would be open to challenge under Canadian law. You extradite the people to the United States, you can then use those wiretaps because the U.S. Constitution doesn't apply to that illegally obtained evidence. And vice versa. We see evidence that was obtained in ways that would have been illegal, and that's exactly what the situation was in HAPE. In fact, in in HAPE you had the situation where they did a search that would have been uh, not properly authorized in Canada, but it was done in the Caribbean, and therefore that evidence went in, in a Canadian criminal proceeding. And so we don't see an extraterritorial application of the Charter or the U.S. Constitution. And then what we see in the extradition context is that the, and and you often can't prove this in any way, the prosecution, coincidentally, will happen in the jurisdiction where there is not, where the, where the uh, relevant constitutional rights don't apply so that that evidence uh, and lo and behold that evidence coincidentally can be used right and my concern when I saw this was that what we see is an insulation on both sides so both the Canadian officers who are now apl- working in a con- in a context that is extraterritorial the charter doesn't apply to what they're doing and the US officers, the U.S. Constitution doesn't apply to what they're doing. And so we're, we're, by virtualizing the border, we have officers on both sides of the border who are now insulated from review of their respective constitutions. Are you talking about the charter applying at Canadian airports and preclearance, or when it goes, if there's Canadian preclearance at U.S. airports, whether the charter would apply? Well, there are two problems, right? One problem is with respect to the Canadian officers in the United States, and there the charter does not apply because of the extraterritorial issue. So in other words, it doesn't apply because the charter doesn't apply extraterritorially. The issue with the U.S. border guards in Canada, so there's the the, the same issue. One, the, con- the U.S. Constitution doesn't apply to them because it doesn't have extraterritorial application. In my understanding, I'm not an expert yeah, in U.S. Right. constitutional right. law. 
And secondly, the charter does not apply to them because they're not governmental actors, unless you frame it in some sort of agency like you do with respect to uh, certain types of security guards exercising certain powers. But what happens with that in those situations is you don't have the, the charter writ large apply to the actions of a security guard who affects an arrest so on those, behalf of... Uh, those other cases where the Supreme Court's found that the charter doesn't apply... Um, has that occurred, though, in a situation similar to this, where the government has passed a bill explicitly stating the charter does apply here? So my understanding is a lot of those cases, it's the government that would argue the charter doesn't apply to us in these circumstances, whereas here, I understand the agency theory behind why it might not, but have we seen it before where the government explicitly passes legislation saying the charter here does apply? But but what does that mean? That's that's my question, Is is... Yes, it says it in this kind of blanket term, but it doesn't specify what that means. Well, practically speaking, I think, you know, so in a U.S. preclearance area on Canadian soil, clearly the U.S. Constitution doesn't apply. They do not have remedies in U.S. courts, as far as I'm aware. Be interesting, though. I think, you know, they do have administrative appeal. So, so if, if you, for instance, if you get banned from the U.S. because of a finding of misrepresentation, and theoretically, you can challenge that through the U.S. whatever administrative review that there is. In my understanding, it's absolutely minimal. It's it's virtually impossible to do that. Um, and when it happens, you know, so so there's that, that administrative review. I don't think you can you can bring that to it's it, that that decision isn't reviewable reviewable in the federal court. Um, and so that if they make their determined a customs determination or an immigration determination, that isn't reviewable. The decision itself isn't reviewable. But if the conduct, and to use the example of, uh, of discrimination that is, you know, clearly contrary to Section 15 of the Charter, uh, what's the remedy for that? And that will be a very interesting one to see. Uh, in theory, I would think that it, the, uh, the bill contemplates that you could bring a challenge, uh, but I could see it being really thorny and, and, and I, I don't know how they're going to do that. And this is all the more reason why, um, you know, in the pre, they need to build in a, a sunset clause into this bill. This is what they really should be doing. Because if it goes off the rails and if it turns out there is no effective remedy and that abuses are happening and we can't do anything about them, then we're going to want to say, I think it's time to review this agreement and change it or revoke it. Uh, the, the previous bill had a five-year sunset clause. It said it had, it, it didn't mean it, it was going to expire in five years, but it had to be reviewed within five years, in, fi- in five years. This bill doesn't contain that kind of provision, and I think it would be a very good provision to put in there because it's such a, a, an enormous expansion of, of powers uh, that uh, we don't know how it's going to work. And we don't know, you know, because of that expansion of powers, you know, people may seek remedies. The, the minister said, we've never had an untoward incident in 60 years. Um, it depends how you define unt- untoward. It's possible they haven't ever had anybody launch litigation over activities at preclearance. Uh, but, I, you know, there's the situation partly because of political changes in the U.S., but also because of this legislative change, it may happen. The, uh, you know, we, we haven't talked a lot about this right to withdraw, but I want to just talk a bit about that because that's one area it could happen. Um, under the current act, if 
you don't like the way it's going. It's an entirely voluntary exercise. At any stage, you can refuse to answer a question. At any stage, you can say, I don't want to go to the United States anymore. I'm leaving. And it does say in the previous legislation, if you refuse to answer a question, you're not bound to answer a question. It's very clear about that. Um, then you can be asked to leave. Fine. That's, that's the way it works now. And once you say, I'm leaving, it's all over. It's, you can go. Under the new bill, if you say, I'm leaving, you don't get to leave. They get to hold you uh, there to ask you questions to determine your identity. Fair enough. Um, but also to determine your reasons for leaving. And that's where things get muddy. Because uh, they put in a limit on that that says uh, they can't un cause unreasonable delay to the traveler. Uh, but what's unreasonable delay? If they think you're a potential security threat, is it not reasonable to allow them to ask a half hour worth of questions? An hour? Two hours? What, what is it? Right? So, um, you know, interpreting what's an unreasonable delay is, 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 is I think, too great. It's, it's, it's too great. It's, uh, it, for one thing. The other thing is the next section of the bill says that if an officer th has reasonable grounds to suspect, it's only suspect, that a person isn't being truthful, or cooperative, they can then detain them to ask them you know, an unlimited amount of questions. And to do it, and they can do searches at that point too, just on the mere suspicion uh, that the person isn't cooperating. So that's what I was going to, in terms of searches, is there anything in the current or proposed legislation regarding them being able to compel you to hand over your phone so they could go through your phone or your laptop? So what's happened, and this is a problem with Canadian law too, um, that at the present time, they're allowed to search your goods, is the way it's worded in our legislation. And I believe the U.S. is something similar. That's been interpreted, including by the courts, to including searching electronic devices. Um, what uh, is not clear is how far they can go in that search. There, there are all kinds of implications of it. This is just when an issue where technology is kind of, um, you know, overtaken the, the legislation never really contemplated this. Um, so they're still sticking to this old definition of goods, but they clearly take the position that our, our Border Services Agency and the U.S. Homeless, Homeland Security both take the position that goods includes electronic devices. And so they, they believe they can compel you to give them your passwords and your devices. They can seize those devices. They can copy the contents of those devices. What's not clear is can they take that a step further and access your social media through passwords? And that's not goods, and it shouldn't be included. The Canadian policy currently is no, they can't do that, but we know it's happening. It's already happening. And so it's only a, it's a policy memo that they're not very open about. It's been accessed, uh, it's been accessed uh, before, so the, we've, I've seen the policy uh, memo on it. Um, but it hasn't, that, that part hasn't gone through the courts yet. But people should be aware. And there's also another issue that arises out of this, which is solicitor-client privilege. You know, you're traveling as a lawyer, you're traveling with information, or it may be an individual, and it's got, you know, their laptop has correspondence between the individual and the lawyer uh, that's, that's highly confidential, can't be used in any court uh, under either Canadian or, or U.S. law, yet um, there's the opportunity there for them to get that information, copy it, and God knows what happens to it after that, um, because there aren't any, any protections in 
either Canadian or U.S. law that have been built into their uh, built into their laws. Well, I think it'll be interesting to see what the courts do with these pre-clearance areas because a lot of our our search and seizure law around borders has been built up around this idea that the border is this special kind of place where the charter mm-hmm. sort of applies, where it half applies. In other words, there's a uh, if you read the Supreme Court in Simmons and in following cases where basically the court looks at. Uh, this question of the border and says the normal laws of search and seizure don't apply because of the serious significant national interests and the lower expectation of privacy and etc it's unclear to me how the court applies that same reasoning to a u.s pre-clearance area because there's clearly no national security interest for canada in pre-clearance to the United States. And so I think those arguments are going to get short shrift or ought to get short shrift from a charter perspective if the charter applies. Um, I, I don't think they've actually thought this through. I, I don't think so in either. In any kind yeah. of meaningful no, it's way. A good, it's a good point. The, um, you know, what, you know, the, 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 the whole line of Degani and, and, and uh, you know, your right to counsel and that kind of things in these, these circumstances. And they've always given the port of entry uh, people uh, a lot more power than any other law enforcement officer ha- has. So what happens if we and see Degani, just to, just to officers. clarify for our listeners, Degani is a case from the Supreme Court of Canada that decides that uh, you don't have a right to counsel under Section 10B of the Charter because you're not detained during quote unquote normal examination. Right. Uh, so you wouldn't actually get a right to counsel, and it creates again a, a different zone at the border. So I didn't right. mean to interrupt. No, I just, no, no, it's important for, for people to understand that. Yeah. It's you know, so you have a situation where you can spend hours at, at the border and you're not considered detained, and even though you're not quite free to go, so <laughs> you're, uh, you're not free to go. But, but that's you're not the detained. way the Supreme Court. <laughs> but it's important to see that that's the way the courts have interpreted when people coming into Canada. So are they going to be as generous to foreign officers applying? the law, at what point in time are they going to say, okay, this is really a detention and the person should have been given the right to counsel or, or you know, search and seizure or whatever. Um, it, you know, that maybe remains to be seen. We would, you know, our position for the bar association is that we would like the government to do the right frame, right thing at the front end and not leave it to be tested and not say, okay, we're, we're going to push the boundary and, and see what we can get away with and see what, let the courts decide. We think that um, they should act responsibly and make sure that there are sufficient protections in the legislation when it first goes into effect. Well, and the preclearance on the whole right to counsel creates that other quirky issue, and I'm not sure how it's dealt with now, whereas if someone's trying to enter Canada, uh, we can drive to the border, we can go to the airport and start making submissions that someone's gone now from routine questions into detention. At a preclearance, uh, where the U.S. has now detaining or holding someone for several hours, I'm not sure how a U.S. immigration lawyer is supposed to get into Canada and then get to the airport to start making submit and get to somewhere where they can even make representations to the preclearance people. Yeah, it's, I don't know, you know, now if, if um, you're, somebody's coming into Canada at Canada Customs, they get uh, charged and detained. They have a right to counsel. 
at that point in time, they, at the point that they're detained officially, they have a right to counsel. They're informed of that right. Um, and so I, you know, don't, I, you guys, but I've had quite a number of calls over the years of people in that situation since I've just been detained and I've told them I have a right to counsel when I called you. Um, what's going to happen with preclearance where, where this happens? I suspect, certainly at the point where a CBSA officer is brought in and, and then detains you, um, that you would think that they would also read your rights and give you a chance to make that phone call. But that's not clear. I don't know that it's happened in the past. Um, it must have happened in the past. But keep in mind, now all searches are done by CBSA officers. So uh, my understanding is they treat it like a detention that they're doing for U.S. or for Canadian customs purposes. Well, I think the detention by the CBSA officer is very clear that there would be 10B rights. Right. Uh, um, so so the question is what happens in, in this situation that I mentioned where they have reasonable grounds to suspect that you have uh, not been cooperative. So they want to just ask you more questions. They're not necessarily going to lay in a charge. So they have to bring in a CBSA office if they're laying a charge. They have to contact CBSA if they want to do a, a strip search. But short of that, they can go quite a long ways. And it, and it looks like in, under this 32 is the name, number of this section, if anybody's interested. Um, it looks like they can go on an extensive fishing expedition after that, asking questions if they think you haven't been cooperative. And, you know, at what point, you know, I think that's a detention. And that's where there's, you know, the rubber will hit the road is, is, is are they going to, you know, when the regulations come out on this and when practice comes out, are they going to inform people of their rights? I would say they should. They, they should have to, but who knows what's going to happen. I think there's a lot of... Uh, yeah. well, I think there's a lot of issues. this conversation about how it wasn't... How now with the Trump administration and you could have a row of border officers on Canadian soil saying, I'm sorry, we're not admitting people from these six countries or we're not admitting Muslims and all the charter issues. No brown skinned people, no black yeah, people, like whatever. The, you know, you, you, you know, that that's, raised. that's the kind of thing. No Jews, whatever, you know, what, what's the Canadian government and what are the courts and what are the charter, you know, how is that going to be applied in that kind of situation if they start to do that? But it's going to be, I'd say more insidious than that, because what's going to happen is what's we've already seen happen at some of the land ports of entry, which is that people who have a Muslim background find themselves being targeted uh, for extensive questioning, what they're what they call extreme vetting, and so you know these kids going out on a school athletic trip, uh, the Muslim kid gets picked off, and he has to go through extensive questioning for hours. Uh, and, and what's happened at land crossings, at least you know what we've seen in the media, is people being questioned about their religion, their beliefs, their religious practices, who they associate with, and what are their opinions of the U.S. Uh, administration, the president. And so what happens when that starts happening at, at preclearance areas? If the, if, if the current trend continues with what the U.S. government seems to want to do, they, they may not be able to, to, to bring in their bad countries list. But what we could easily see is a de facto, uh, that is, the, you know, in practice, they bring it into effect anyway by just not letting in people of certain faith, for instance, into the U.S. by, you know, just how they apply their policies. Um, I think that'll be a real test of this legislation um, and particularly of the, the supposed applicable, applicability of the charter uh, to see if there's a remedy against that kind of behavior. And are they still going to be armed in Canada, the U.S. border? So, so what the deal is that, uh, that they put in there is, you know, I've said before, I think I, I might have said it to the parliamentary committee that 
the only right that's protected by this legislation is the right to bear arms. And, and, and it's true that if you look at the agreement, that's the one thing they focus on is, is it's one right that gets mentioned. It's not so much a right, but they're saying that U.S. officers operating on, in a preclearance area can carry arms, firearms, if Canadian officers in a similar situation would be unable, able to carry arms. So they're saying, don't worry, at airports, the U.S. officers won't be armed because Canadian officers aren't armed. The question then becomes, well, what happens at the train station when the preclearance is there? What's the rule there? You know, are they, are they going to be armed? We don't know. And land crossings, certainly at land crossings now, uh, Canadian officers are armed. All of them are armed. So I would think a land preclearance, uh, you can expect that the officers will be armed, American officers on Canadian soil. So we've we've talked a lot about the uh, um, U.S. officers in Canada. Um, so this this bill also foresees Canadian officers being posted in the United States and doing preclearance there. Um, are there there are some concerns that have raised been raised around the the new powers in this bill, in particular, for example, with respect to permanent residents and refugees, and some of the clearance as to what's going to happen to people uh, on that side. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the some sure. of the concerns on the uh, on the sure. Canadian so, side? You know, I've said that the you know the the bulk of it is about U.S. preclearance. Well, the larger part of the bill is about U.S. preclearance on Canadian soil, and the the government's taking the position that well, that was negotiated already. We don't want to go back to the negotiating table, but we're stuck with it. So this is what we're going to do. Well, what's not in there is is in that agreement is Canadians operating Canadian. Uh, immigration operating preclearance in the U.S. And what they've stuck in there is that uh, in a preclearance area, in a Canadian preclearance area in the United States, they can deny entry to a, a Canadian permanent resident, which is something they cannot do at a port of entry. At, a, at any port of entry into Canada, they cannot, if once they determine this person is a permanent resident, they must be admitted, and there are no exceptions. They might want to arrest the person, if there's a warrant out, or if there's a security concern and there's grounds to arrest, they can do that at a port of entry. But they can't deny them entry. They can even take steps to take away their status and start that process. The people will have a right of appeal, uh, but they still have to let them in the country. But what they put in there, and they can't give a good justification for it, is that um, they can just simply deny a permanent resident for whatever reason. Now, they're saying, well, the regulations will specify it's going to be limited to certain things. We're hearing different things from the department and the minister on that. Department says for like you know if there's a real security concern that we should be able to deny them the power to board the the plane. Um, uh, the minister said if it's serious criminality, we should be able to keep them out of Canada. And there's, it doesn't make sense when you when all they have to do is go to a land crossing, they will be admitted. So why are you doing this to them? If there's so a security... What, just to clarify for our listeners, what does happen when you come to a land crossing? So like if you show up at a land crossing as a permanent resident... If you're a permanent resident, they first ask questions to determine, are you in fact a permanent resident? Well, if you were, if you were given permanent resident status in the past and it has never been taken away, then you are a permanent resident. As soon as they determine that, it's never, that you were given it and you've never had it taken away, then you have to be admitted. But they can ask questions to determine whether you've, uh, or certainly they do, whether there's questionable legal authority for it, but they ask questions to determine whether uh, you might have become inadmissible, like say by staying out of Canada for too long. 
you didn't comply with the residency requirement. Well, they can't take away your status and say you're not a permanent residence, uh, resident anymore and now go home. All they can do is say, okay, we're starting a process against you, whereby if you don't appeal successfully, you will uh, lose your permanent resident status. But they still have to admit you. So it doesn't make sense why they don't give the same respect to permanent resident status at, at pre-clearance areas. If there were somebody who we had a real, like a, the security concern was that they might do something on the plane, there, then, then U.S. law would apply and they could treat that person the way they treat anybody else who was a security risk to get on the plane. They could be arrested. Um, they can... Yeah. They can be banned from a flight, for instance, if they're risked. It's and not after a, they get to Canada, I think, condition if there is that big a concern about public safety. If it's can, if it's yeah, if it's a public safety thing or or a um, criminality, say, and they want to go after the person, they can arrest them when they get there. When they get there. So, it's uh, it's one of these things we don't see any rationale for it, and and uh, it's not because it was negotiated. It's something that they just want to slide in there. Similarly. They want to say that uh, right now, a, a person who wants to claim refugee status in Canada can come to any port of entry and they can claim refugee status. There's issues with the safe third country agreement about doing that, but, but uh, they can do it. Uh, the bill expressly says you cannot do it at a preclearance area. Now, it's, you know, it's not huge in terms of far as deals go because you know, people can still go to a land crossing. Where it could become a, a greater concern is where they they if, if they expand preclearance areas to the extent that they want everybody to funnel through preclearance areas and there really is no option to go to a independent law land crossing, then that could be could undermine the ability of people to claim refugee status in Canada. If that were to happen, I think also they can't apply for work permits or study permits or preclearance areas. Um, no, I, I'm not sure about that one. I, I I'm Thinking that well, that's a good question. I'm not. I'm not 100 sure. No, I believe they can. Okay. I, I no, they can because um, it's already happening in the U.S. side. In fact, you know, the U.S. Uh, I in myself with the little U.S. that I used to do in the past, I did it all through. I prefer to go to a preclearance area okay. because bad things can happen to you at the U.S. border, and they can detain you and throw you in jail and that kind of thing. They can't. They can't do that at the preclearance area, not under U.S. law. Yeah. They can do it under Canadian, but um, yeah, no, you can still get study permits and work permits at the board yeah, okay. at the preclearance. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this. Uh, I think this is part of a broader, with with respect to refugees, is part of a broader trend of virtualizing and pushing the border out from Canada's perspective mm -hmm. as well, where you want to stop refugees from getting to Canada in the first place, um, and we spend a lot of money and resources on interdiction to stop people from getting on planes uh, yeah. in the first place. So it wasn't surprising to see that brought in uh, with respect to that, uh, um, you know, perhaps wasn't a surprising section. It just, uh, you know, increases that virtualization of the border and where we're seeing yeah. the, the border being pushed further and further out. And for those um, who want to listen, we did a whole episode on this pushing out of the border with Efrat uh, Arbel. Um, so that's a previous podcast episode that uh, you might want to check out. And uh, as well as Efrat, since then, uh, Efrat, uh, Benjamin Gould, and Catherine Dovern uh, recently got uh, s significant funding from Shirk to do a study on Beyond the Border. Uh, so you can have a look uh, have a look online. You'll be we'll we'll post a link to their project. Uh, uh, to their project, but they are—they're going to be doing. I think it's a three or four-year study of uh, of the Beyond the Border um, implementation and and the the impact uh, of 
the very issues that we've been talking about, as well as a number of other border issues uh, um, in this uh, the, this beyond the border plan. Uh, yeah, and this has been Canada this has been cooking for a long time. I mean, I've been, I've been practicing for thirty years, and we st- started to see this in the early nineteen nineties. This uh, what they call interdiction abroad. Um, they they started to to really get clearer on their policies, and that's when we started to put Canadian officers in, in foreign airports, for instance, screening people's documents so and, and picking people off so they couldn't get on the plane. So we're going to see a trend that way. This, this issue with not allowing permanent residents to come to Canada will be much more serious if we start operating preclearance areas outside of the U.S. Because now, if you get denied at a preclearance area uh, that Canada operates, let's say, in New Jersey, um, you can just come to the land border and come in and this, this, you know, you're still going to get in. What happens if you get in, denied entry in Paris? You're a permanent resident and there's a preclearance area there and they won't let you on the plane. What do you do then? What's your remedy? Well, the only way is to get to the United States and cross to the land crossing, but if you can't get a U.S. visa, what is, what's going to happen? So, you know, we raised that issue in, in our meetings with government officials and their answer was, well, this isn't happening it's only we're only talking about the u.s right now so yeah. you know we'll, we'll, we'll set that aside my concern uh, our concern is that you put this model in place now and it's just going to be cloned uh, in the future and they'll say well we're already doing that in the u.s so we can do it overseas and uh, yeah. that's why i think we we want to nip that one if we can on the refugee context given that the charter doesn't apply to preclearance in the U.S. at U.S. airports, has there been concern expressed about, uh, say, a refugee claimant who doesn't realize that they can't make their claim at a preclearance, where the CBSA officer can then do a lengthy deten- or a lengthy interrogation, take down the equivalent of a very detailed refugee narrative, punt them, and then when the person next comes, they have to now be worried about possible inconsistencies um, or things like that. I mean, I think those are definitely, uh, you know, may well be concerns if uh, if the person hasn't gotten uh, um, advice. I think that'll apply across the board with respect to people who are are giving detailed statements uh, in these in, in these interrogations. Once they're refusing you entry or they're going to refuse you boarding, um, the the interest in continuing to talk at that point. If you're withdrawing, uh, whether it's a voluntary withdrawal or whether you're just you know, you're you're deciding to withdraw your application to come to Canada. Um, I I see a limited interest in continuing to talk at that point, except for giving the bare minimum of you know why are you withdrawing? I'm withdrawing because I no longer want to come to Canada, or I've decided not to continue my application. Depending on what um, point you learn that you can't actually make your claim there. Yeah. Well, and I think those are the. Uh, I think those will be legitimate questions that, and that we that see. That person who hasn't gotten advice isn't likely to know what their yeah. rights are, what that they could withdraw or whatever. So, it's you could see that there, there might be some fishing expeditions go on and thinking, okay, this guy may show up in the future, and it could even become policy because it certainly has been policy in the past to to ask people a lot of detailed questions about their claims uh, and to use that information against them in hearings. That's that's been the practice in the past so why wouldn't they do it at preclearance areas i think it's entirely conceivable and so then what happens where the person says i don't want to answer any more questions i'm withdrawing and the officer keeps asking questions what happens to that evidence when they try to introduce that evidence at a, at a hearing at, a, at the person's refugee he- subsequent hearing in canada 
Good question. I don't know what you do. The example you gave about evidence that would never have been allowed to be gathered in Canada, but that it was gathered offshore, being the courts allowing it to be admitted. So it's, uh, you know, it's very hypothetical right now because the uh, Canadian government isn't operating any preclearance areas in the U.S. and there no don't seem to be any concrete plans right now for it to happen, you know, in the foreseeable future. So uh, it's all speculative right now. But um, the thing about this kind of legislation is you have to base it on what could happen. You have to look at uh, what are the possible scenarios. And so, you know, they make a rule that's intended to catch one thing, but it so often when it's applied, it ends up catching all kinds of other things. And so that's what we're trying to, to look at this legislation. We know what your intentions are. Sure, they may be very good, but but in fact, and we see in, in effect, this gives a, a absolute green light for, for all kinds of behavior that we think is, is in unnecessary and inappropriate. So uh, given the current political climate, what, where do you see this legislation going? What do you what do you see? Where where is it at now? And and what where do you what's your take on on where this is going? Government has a majority; they can do whatever they want and say from a you know a caucus revolt. I don't see um, this kind of legislation getting blocked. It's only if the government looks at it and says, "Okay, we want to do the right thing and we want to do some tweaking." Um, we are as at the time of of having this conversation, we are days away from it going through what's called clause by clause uh, reading at the committee. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not overly optimistic that there's going to be any productive changes because we certainly haven't got any, any indication yet that they want to do anything. So, um, unfortunately, I think there's a strong chance it could go through. And so you think it's not just good? I mean, there's the possibility it just dies on the order paper. That's or not that going to happen. Or that it goes and dies in the Senate. It's not dying. It's not going to die. First of all, the conservatives who are behind it, they, they're still pretty strong in the Senate. So they're not going to hold this legislation up. Um, at, at, you know, certainly at the House of Commons, they're not the ones who are filing any objections. Um, the objections are coming from outside the NDP a little bit. Um, some liberals are definitely concerned. Um, I think that it will only change if there's a public outcry. Now, there has been... You know, certainly I've done had some media uh, appearances on this, and people have come contacted me quite upset, and they told us um, uh, that they've had a lot of feedback has come back to to, to parliamentary committee uh, from the general public, people who are quite alarmed by this. So, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that more people will wake up to it and, and say something now when there's still a chance, and that the politicians will get a bit nervous. And say, gee, we maybe we need to do something. So I think you said the last bill was two thousand nine or nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine. So I was like, you know, you've been making submissions to Parliament on immigration legislation for a while. Have you noticed a difference in how the process works between now and then, or is it still substantively the same, or what's changed? Uh, it, you know, it depends on the legislation. It depends on the committee and on the government. I, I will say that. Um, you know, if the government's not taking a hard line, uh, then when I say the government, I'm actually talking about cabinet um, on a piece of legislation. The committee um, will feel like it's got the room to explore the legislation and try to do the right thing. In in some cases, the government of the day says, "We're you guys are passing this, just do it. And they crack the party whip. And those, you know, I've appeared in, in front of committees 
uh, in that kind of situation, and it's it believe me, is it ever a waste of time? Uh, because the majority of the committee is just not interested in hearing anything anybody has to say because they've been told how to vote and not to change anything. Um, the that happened an, an awful lot under the Harper government because that's the style of, of leadership that was there. Um, the 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 you know the caucus was very much whipped into shape. If they had objections, they did it in caucus meetings. They never did it in committee meetings or in public. Um, and we see. You know, this government is still pretty young, uh, and I think there's there's more openness. But the, it doesn't mean that the you know the prime minister's office isn't trying to get a certain agenda through, and and sometimes you can tell that a committee is not that interested in in exploring the issues. Certainly, rightly or wrongly, that was the perception I had with my appearance on this one. All right. Well. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's uh, it's been great. I think we've uh, definitely learned some things yeah. uh, and uh, have a have a bit of a better understanding of this issue. So uh, thank you very much, and uh, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk to you again uh, at some point in the future. Thanks. That was a pleasure. Yeah, that was good. Thank you for joining us on the Borderlines podcast. You can find us at borderlines.ca. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please do leave us a review. It does help others to find the podcast. Thank you very much to Robin Bayer and Funk in the Trunk for our music and to our sound tech, Macaulay Higgins. 